Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey, you're here, I'm here, it's Tuesday, and we have a podcast episode to do tonight. Now, if you've been listening from the very beginning, or you've been kind of doing it on and off occasionally, I'm not mad, it's okay, or this might be your first time ever listening to Murder Bucket, thank you so much for joining us, for listening for hanging out, for being our friend, for following us on social media. If you don't, check us out. Links to all the social media is in our show notes. Now, we recently finished a series called The Cold Case Road Trip. We traveled to all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories over the course of about 29 episodes. I am sure you are tired of listening to me talk about that. Well, guess what? I don't have to talk about it anymore because we finished it last week. So that means we are back discussing murders, paranormal activity, kidnappings, abductions, and of course, weird stuff. Tonight is a monumental episode. It is episode 50, but you already knew that because you clicked on tonight's episode and saw that as the title. But what are we talking about tonight? We are going to discuss Mark David Chapman. You might have heard who that is. And if you haven't, he is the man who shot and killed famous singer, songwriter, musician, and former Beatles member, John Lennon. But as always, let's quickly do our week-slash-weekend recap. Wednesday, several of our friends came over to help my husband put in -in blown-in insulation in our attic. You might be wondering, why don't they have insulation in their attic before this? Well, let me make a long story short. In 2019, our house was struck by lightning and caught fire, so all the smoke from the fire on the back of the house went up into the attic, went in one side, and came out all the way on the other side. So all of the insulation had to be taken out during our construction. Well, we had a contractor that wasn't so good at their job, decided to ghost us at the very end, and didn't put any of our insulation back in our attic. So of course... Since we moved in in 2020, we have had very high electrical bills every single month. 
So after doing several bits of research to look into companies that did blown-in insulation in the attic, we realized that it was going to cost us between $2,500 and $3,000 for a company to do this for us. So we decided instead to just go to Lowe's every so often, buy little bits and pieces of insulation, and do it ourselves. When we bought the first pack of rolled insulation, my husband put it up there and realized that our rafters are actually spaced too far apart and one package of insulation fit between two rafters. So we would have probably spent just as much as a company would have charged us to do it themselves. Well, after doing just a little bit more research, I looked on Lowe's and found out that if you bought 10 or more bags of blown-in insulation, you could rent their machine for free. So what do I do? I buy 10 bags of blown-in insulation. My husband goes, picks it up. Friends come over on Wednesday. They put it in. And lo and behold, 10 bags fit perfectly in our attic. The right amount that was needed and the right depth that is needed for the county building code. And we only spent about $450. Mine completely blown. Then on Friday, my husband and I went to refinance our house, which of course saves us a butt ton of money every single month on our mortgage, which we could put that towards something else. And then Saturday, we went to a friend's house who are having a baby and they did a gender reveal. So excited. Our tiny child is going to have a new tiny child best friend and I can't wait. Speaking of our tiny child, Saturday, she started walking on her own. And I mean like completely on her own, more than just the two or three steps and then sitting down like she had been doing before. I was sitting at the kitchen table eating breakfast and all of a sudden she just lets go of the refrigerator and walks all around the kitchen, doesn't stop, doesn't hold on to anything and doesn't sit down. So before we went to the friend's house for the gender reveal, We needed to go to Lowe's and Walmart to pick up a few things, and she walked the entire time, all through Lowe's and all through Walmart. So guys, I officially have a walker. I am so excited. And then Sunday, of course, we went to church. We went out to lunch with several of our friends And then I went over to my friend Lindsay's house and hung out with her for most of the evening. Monday was the first day of the week. Of course, dreadful, I know. But after work, everybody in our office went across the street to a Mexican restaurant and had a baby shower for one of the girls at work who her son is coming on Monday. We're very excited But of course, we're going to miss her while she's out. And now we've made it to Tuesday. And you're here with me. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into tonight's episode. Mark David Chapman was born in Fort Worth, Texas on May 10th, 
1955. His dad, David, was a staff sergeant in the United States Air Force, and his mother, Diane, was a nurse. Shortly after he was born, his family moved to Atlanta, Georgia. His sister, Susan, was born seven years later. David was physically abusive toward his wife and was unloving toward his children. This made Mark afraid of him. During an interview with journalist James Gaines, he recalled an instance with his father and explained, He would beat her up. I'd wake up hearing my mother screaming my name, and it just scared the fire out of me. I'd run in there and put up my fists and make him go away. One positive thing his father did was teach him how to play the guitar and bought him his first Beatles album, Meet the Beatles. This made him a devout fan. At one point, Mark described his childhood to psychiatrists as unhappy, noting that he was the type of child who was often picked on by other kids. This resulted in him relying heavily on imaginary people for entertainment. He told journalist Jack Jones, I used to fantasize that I was a king, and I had all these little people around me, and that they lived in the walls, and that I was their hero and was in the paper every day. I was on TV every day their TV, and I was important. They all kind of worshipped me, you know? It was like I could do no wrong, but sometimes when I'd get mad, I'd blow some of them up. I'd have this push-button thing, part of the couch, and I'd, like, get mad and blow out part of the wall, and a lot of them would die. But the people would still forgive me for that, and, you know, everything got back to normal. That's a fantasy I had for many years. Mark attended Columbia High School in Decatur and immediately began abusing drugs such as marijuana and heroin and skipped class because he was bullied by other students. He claimed that the bullying was because he wasn't a good athlete. On several occasions, Mark would run away from home and live on the streets of Atlanta for several weeks. On one occasion while living on the streets, he was arrested by police following a harrowing LSD trip. After spending a night in jail, his father picked him up. This was the first and only time he ever saw his father crying. In 1971, at the age of 16, Mark became a born-again Presbyterian while visiting his grandmother in Florida. He felt betrayed by his so-called friends and decided to turn to God out of desperation. He then began to distribute biblical tracts. According to Wikipedia.com, a tract is a literary work and, in current usage, usually religious in nature. The notion of what constitutes a tract has changed over time. By the early part of the 21st century, a tract referred to a brief pamphlet used for religious and political purposes, though far from often the former. Tracts are often either left for someone to find or handed out. However, there have been many times in history when the term implied tomb-like works. A tractic, a derivative of a tract, is equivalent in Hebrew literature to a chapter of the Christian Bible. 
London's Evening Standard ran a weekly series titled How Does a Beetle Live? in March of 1966. These articles were written by Maureen Cleave. She knew the group well and had interviewed each member of the band regularly since the start of Beatlemania in the United Kingdom. During an interview she had with John Lennon in February at his home in Wybridge, he discussed his interest in Indian music and showed off his well-organized library, including a book written by Hugh Schoenfield titled The Passover Plot. John Lennon states that this influenced his ideas about Christianity. She mentioned him reading extensively about religion, and he is quoted in the article saying, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. Mark mentioned this interview to Jan Reeves, who is a friend's sister. He was really angry toward John Lennon and didn't understand why he would say those things. He said that there should be nobody more popular than the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed it to be blasphemy. While the song Imagine would be sung at prayer meetings and religious rallies, Mark and his prayer group would often change the lyrics of Imagine to Imagine John Were Dead. His childhood friend Miles McManish recalled that Mark would say the song was communist. During his senior year of high school, he began to work at a summer camp as a counselor at the South DeKalb County YMCA. He was very popular among the kids, so much so that they nicknamed him Nemo. He won the Outstanding Counselor Award four years in a row and was promoted to assistant director. The executive director of the camp stated in an article, if there ever was a person who had the potential for doing good, it was Mark. Those that knew him called him an outstanding worker. During the summer working at the camp, he met his first girlfriend, Jessica Blankenship, at a fundamentalist prayer group. After graduating high school, he moved to Chicago, Illinois for a brief time playing guitar in churches and Christian night spots. He then began working for World Vision International, an evangelical Christian humanitarian aid, development, and advocacy organization. The area where he worked helped Vietnamese refugees at a resettlement camp at Fort Chaffee in Arkansas. During his time there, he was named an area coordinator and a key aide to David Moore, the program director, and accompanied him to meetings with government officials. David Moore told a reporter in an article that he was really caring with the refugees and he worked his tail off to do everything exactly right. He was a super kid. Mark then followed his girlfriend Jessica to Covenant College, a strict Presbyterian university in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. During his first semester, he began to fall behind on his studies. 
he started having suicidal thoughts due to his obsessed guilt over having an affair and feeling like a failure. He dropped out and Jessica broke off their relationship. He then returned to work at the resettlement camp, but left soon after due to an argument. He found work as a security guard at the Atlanta airport, and after taking a week-long course to become an armed guard, he was then posted at DeKalb General Hospital. In 1977, Mark decided to move to Hawaii. While there, he attempted suicide by carbon monoxide asphyxiation. He hooked a hose to his car's exhaust pipe, but the hose melted and his attempt failed. When he was found, he was brought to Castle Memorial Hospital and was admitted for clinical depression by a psychiatrist. After being released, the hospital hired him in the maintenance department part-time and then later in their print shop. His supervisor stated in a report, All the patients, especially the older ones that nobody else would talk to, just love that boy, and I can't say enough good things about him. At some point during this time, his parents got a divorce and his mother joined him in Hawaii. In 1978, Mark went on a six-week trip around the world. The film, Around the World in 80 Days, was the main motivation for his trip. He visited Tokyo, Seoul, Hong Kong, Singapore, Bangkok, Dell, Beirut, Geneva, London, Paris, and Dublin. The travel agent who helped him plan this was Gloria Abe. She later admitted that she was attracted to him from the moment she met him. And while he was on this trip, her love for him grew. When Mark returned to Hawaii, Gloria was there waiting for him at the airport. The two began a romantic relationship shortly after Mark returned to the States. She quickly learned about his failed suicide attempt and his mental illness. She believed that his mental problems had been resolved when he spent time in the psychiatric ward, but soon after the couple married on June 2nd of 1979, his behavior changed and Gloria began to suffer because of it. Mark then began abusing alcohol, which in turn got him fired from his job at the hospital. He was eventually rehired, but of course, that didn't last long as he got into an argument with a nurse and quit. He then gets a job as an evening security guard. In October of 1980, Mark quits this job too. Gloria recalls him reading a book at the library called John Lennon, One Day at a Time by Anthony Fawcett, and him telling her that he hated that John Lennon would preach love and peace but have millions of dollars. Mark said, He told us to imagine no possessions, and there he was, with millions of dollars and yachts and farms and country estates, laughing at people like me, who had believed the lies and bought the records and built a big part of their lives around his music. Mark then became infatuated with the novel The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. 
If you know nothing about this book, here is a quick summary. The novel details two days in the life of 16-year-old Holden Caulfield after he has been expelled from prep school. Confused and disillusioned, Holden searches for truth and rails against the phoniness of the adult world. He ends up exhausted and emotionally unstable. Mark started to identify with Holden Caulfield, and at one point, he told reporter Jim Gaines that I really identified with him. His light, his loneliness, his alienation from society. Eventually, Mark's actual life and the life of Holden Caulfield began to blur together to where Mark didn't know what was real and what was actually coming from this book. Mark then developed an extreme hatred for everything fake and began to direct his hatred toward Lennon, calling him a poser. This made Mark decide that it was up to him to rid the world of John Lennon. In October of 1980, Mark traveled to New York planning on killing Lennon, but ended up leaving because he couldn't purchase ammunition there. Instead, he traveled to Atlanta to buy ammunition from his friend Dana Reeves. In November, he returned to New York. During his time there, he went to go see the film Ordinary People and was inspired to not go through with his plan and instead return to Hawaii. Now this is when he told his wife Gloria that he had been fantasizing about killing Lennon and traveled to New York to go through with it, but ultimately backed out. He recalled the message, Thou shall not kill, flashing on the TV one day while he was watching it. Now he did schedule an appointment with a psychologist, but instead of going to this appointment, he flew back to New York in December. On December 6th, Mark purchased the album Double Fantasy by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. While at the 72nd Street subway station, he accosted singer James Taylor. In an article on independent.co.uk, James Taylor recalls this encounter saying, His eyes were darting all over the place. They were dilated like crazy. He was glistening with sweat, and he seemed either drugged or in a manic break of some sort. He was just talking a mile a minute about something he was going to show Lennon. He was just someone who knew me, but that I didn't know. Someone who had an agenda that I knew I couldn't deal with. I just knew that I needed to get away from him. On the morning of December 8th, Mark walked out of his hotel room at the Sheraton, leaving behind personal items. He stopped at a bookstore and bought himself a new copy of The Catcher in the Rye. Inside the front cover, he wrote, This is my statement, and signed it, Holding Caulfield. He then walked to the Dakota apartment building where John Lennon lived. Per usual, there were many fans waiting outside his apartment, hoping to either catch a glimpse of him and maybe get his autograph. 
At one point in the morning, while Mark was speaking with several other fans, he missed John Lennon get out of a cab and walk inside. A couple hours later, John Lennon's nanny returned to the apartment with Sean, Lennon's son, after their walk. Mark then walked up to them, reached out in front of the nanny, and shook Sean's hand. He called him a beautiful boy and quoted John Lennon's song, Beautiful Boy, Darling Boy. Mark then continued to wait outside the apartment with the other fans. At around 5.50 that evening, John Lennon and Yoko Ono exited the Dakota and started to get into a limousine to head to a recording session at Record Plant Studios. Before they could get in, Mark approached them with the double fantasy album that he had purchased two days earlier and asked Lennon to sign it. Amateur photographer Paul Gorish was nearby and snapped a photo of Lennon signing the album. And that concludes tonight's episode. Be sure to tune in next week to learn about what happens, Mark's trial, and his life in prison. Before you go, be sure to check out this promo from my friends at Bedknobs and Broomflix. Hi, I'm Linda. And I'm Jane. And we have a brand new podcast called Bedknobs and Broomflicks, where we talk about witches of the entertainment world. From the horror movies Warlock, Suspiria, The Witch, and The Blair Witch Project. To the more comedic or whimsical, such as Harry Potter, Hocus Pocus, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and The Blair Witch Project. No movie, TV show, or book is off limits. All witches, man witches, sorry warlocks, we're not calling you that, witches brews, witches of history, familiars, and witch-like activity will be discussed as we laugh and have fun talking about the wonderful world of witches. So join us every other week for some fun witchy talk. All witches welcome. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Murdbucket. Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.